Thanks for the assist, Karen <laughs> and Leanne. It's always a fun time up front. And it was great to have so many kids up there. It's also a great video, and I think a, a lesson in there for the adults probably just as much, if not more, than the kids. So I think I heard uh, probably more laughter coming from the adult section than from the kids up front. But uh, there's something in there for all of us, and I, I really enjoy those every week. We are going to be concluding our series on unmerited favor this morning, and uh, it's been my privilege to be able to share it with you over these past weeks. Uh, it's been, uh, once again, eye-opening for me and uh, compelling in a personal way to just dive into thinking about the mercy and grace of God, and as it applies to me, and as it applies to this church. And it's been something that I have found extremely motivating, and I pray that you have as well, because uh, this morning is going to be ending on that note, the note of motivation. Uh, so I hope it ends with an exclamation point and something for us to leave here today uh, with some fuel in our tank and a, uh, a spring in our step and ultimately motivation uh, from where we go forward from here. So would you bow with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, you know how this week I have wrestled with this word, and I pray, Father, that as you have laid it upon my heart, that you will not only give me the boldness to speak as I should, Lord, but I pray that you would grant me the joy. I also pray, Lord, that as we as a church body receive your word, Father, that you would stir our hearts, and that, Lord, as we consider your unmerited favor that you have showered upon us, that we would be changed, and that we would be motivated by it in every aspect of our lives. So, Father, I just ask your Holy Spirit to pour out your presence in this place. Through your word, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a story told of a particular frog that was hopping along a highway and fell into a deep pothole. The pothole was just deep enough that as hard as the, the frog would hop and as high as he could hop, he just couldn't quite get out. And so his friends happened along and saw him hopping and ribbiting down in the bottom of this pothole, and they said, well, just, you know, jump a little, a little higher. You can do it. And so he would try again, but he still would get right to the edge, but then slide back in. And so his friends tried to encourage him. They, they tried to help him whatever way a frog could, but they were limited. And finally, the, the frog just gave up and sat there in the bottom of the pothole. His friends finally had done everything they felt they could, and so they hopped away, thinking that they were never going to see that particular frog again. Well, the next day, who should they see but the frog that was at the bottom of the pothole, hopping along the path? And well, they were surprised to see him. And so they went up to him and they asked him, We thought you couldn't get out of that pothole. However, did you manage to escape? To which the frog replied, Well, I couldn't. But then a truck came along, and I had to. It's interesting, isn't it, how change of circumstances can change our motivation and therefore change our means or ability to change our circumstances. But it all comes down to how urgent is our motivation. Now, I can't tell you for certain whether that story is truth or fiction. I don't speak frog. But uh, it highlights for us today, I believe, our key component of this morning's message, which is the aspect of motivation. Let me begin this morning and get your, your minds turning around this subject for a moment by asking you a question. What motivates the actions and activities of your life? All right, just start thinking about that for a moment. What motivates the actions and activities of your life? Let's get right down to simple level. Why do you get out of bed in the morning? 
What motivates that action? Why do you go to school? Why did you get married, if you are married? And if you're married, why did you have children? And why then did you have more children? You ever wondered that? Why? Why do you work the particular job that you're currently working? Or why are you not working? Why do you say the things you say and do the things you do? Why did you come to church this morning? You ever ponder these questions? What, what motivates you? What motivates these actions, these everyday things that you do? What is driving your life? Have you thought about these things? Because the fact is that all human activity, from the mundane, everyday things to the, to the spectacular achievements that we would hold up on a pedestal, every last one of those activities is motivated by something. The most basic action to the most complex, absolutely everything we do has an underlying motive. Even people's most seemingly random or impulsive behavior still has an underlying motive, no matter how simple it is. I remember when I was working as a counselor at Turtle Mountain, I came upon a couple of boys out in the bush behind the cabin who had caught a bunch of frogs. I don't know if it was the same frogs as in the original story, but they had caught this pail full of frogs, and as I came upon them, I discovered that they were beginning to just pull their legs off. Poor frogs, you know, like, where were they going to hop to now? And uh, so I run up to them, and I, I stop them, of course, you know, and, and I ask the obvious question. Why are you doing that? And the boys kind of looked at each other, and the one kid shrugged and said, We were bored. Sounds simple, right? But he was telling me the truth. They were bored. And as simple an action as they or as cruel an action as they were taking, the underlying motivation was no, nothing more than a desire to alleviate the, what they perceived to be their boredom. And along that note, I would add as a sidebar here that I wonder how many actions we take in our lives aren't motivated by the exact same thing. A desire to alleviate boredom. I think a lot of times when we pick up that remote control, that might be the underlying motivation, isn't it? This desire to alleviate what we perceive to be boredom. And yet, here we see that even something that we would think could have no good motivation, maybe it's not good, but they are still motivated by something. Even the court of law in our land, our legal system, recognizes the fundamental aspect of motivation as one of the three core aspects of a crime that must be established in order to determine guilt or innocence. We know them, of course, from our uh, maybe movie exposure or watching Law and Order as means, motive, and opportunity. These are three things that our legal system has established as core necessities for any action to take place. Means, motive, and opportunity. Respectively, they refer to means being the ability of the defendant to commit the crime. Motive, the reason the defendant felt the need to commit the crime. And opportunity, whether or not the defendant had the chance to commit the crime. So now consider this for a moment. If the court of law in our land, the legal system, safely assumes that these three criteria must be in place for someone to commit a crime, which is a negative action, then I think we can also say the reverse is true. That would also mean that if anyone was going to commit an act of good, do a positive action, then they would also need to have the means, motive, and opportunity to do that as well. So, then using this framework, let me ask you the question. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what motivates you to do good? To do a positive action? To love your neighbor? Or harder yet, love your enemy? What motivates you to these actions? I want to turn your attention once again to my favorite disciple, Simon Peter. Simon Peter would tell us that there is one fundamental motivation that is the inspiration and driving force behind all Christian action and activity. 
And when we talk about action, it's safe to say that Simon Peter knew a thing or two about action. He was a man of action. He was always the first guy out of the boat, the first guy to open his mouth or shove his foot in his mouth, one and the same sometimes, as you will recall from last week. You know, Peter is your prototypical man of action. And so I think we would do well to listen to what he has to say about what should motivate action. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we read these words. We're jumping into the middle of a thought that he's already developing. The first part, he's developing the premise of salvation. And now he's speaking right along that topic, beginning in verse 10, and he says this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And then we skip ahead to the last line of verse 12, which says, Even the angels long to look into these things. Even the angels long for this. And so it begs the question, what things? What things were the angels longing to look into? Well, the answer was given in verse 10. Did you catch it? Verse 10 has this line. It says, The grace that was to come to you. The grace that was to come to you. The Old Testament prophets knew that God's grace was coming. God had laid this upon them, and and they had prophesied to this extent that His grace was coming. And the angels of heaven also knew that His grace was coming. They just didn't know exactly how. They weren't given all the details of the plan. And so even the angels were curious and they longed to know, what was the plan? How was this grace going to be revealed to the world? The prophets knew it was coming. The angels knew it was coming. But no one knew exactly how it was going to be revealed. And so when it finally comes, when God's plan and his grace that was to come finally was sent into the world, just imagine the shock Imagine the disbelief of the angels of heaven when they discover that the grace was none other than the only begotten Son of God, sent into this world, not as a king, not as a ruler, but as a servant, a baby, born in a manger. Wow! Imagine just the utter disbelief of the Old Testament prophets who, if they were given the, the view to see these, these activities unfold and for them to just think, this is what we are prophesying about, but never in our wildest imagination would we anticipate that the grace that was to come was going to be none other than God himself in the flesh, sent not as a king, but as a sacrificial lamb to die for the sins of the world. This is what Simon Peter is talking about. My grace I am sending is none other than my son. Simon Peter understood action. And Simon Peter, more than anyone perhaps, also understood grace. Consider that the very man who denied his own Lord three times, the coward who watched from a distance as his Lord, as he describes in verse 19, that the precious blood of Christ was shed, a lamb without blemish or defect, chosen before the creation of the world, but revealed in the last times for our sake. He stood at a distance, hiding away while these events unfolded. Simon Peter, the denier, was not only a witness to this incredible grace, but was the recipient of it when Jesus forgave him, restored him, and then gave him a mission. What was that mission? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, Peter. Feed my sheep. Three times he was given the mission, as three times Peter reaffirmed his love for the Savior that he had denied. Jesus restored him and gave him a mission. So, we have to ask the question, what motivated Peter to live out that mission? 
to achieve the goal that Jesus then set out for him to do. What motivated him? He tells us himself in verse verse 13. Read, Read along with me here. Verse 13. It's our key verse to understand this concept this morning. It's our call to worship. It's printed in the front side of your bulletins. It says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. This isn't just a passive call here. This isn't, this isn't just a, a guy who's saying, yeah, I'm going back to fishing. No, no, no. He's done with fishing now. He's fishing for men full time. Right? Jesus called him and said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. This guy is saying, now prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. This is a key to action because anyone who's going to do action in the name of Jesus Christ needs discipline needs self-control because there's going to be things along the way that are going to distract us, hold us back, keep us from fulfilling the mission. Any good soldier who is given a mission, as Paul wrote, knows that he must be single-minded, focusing on the mission, not allowing any other distractions to stop him from completing it. And so in the same way, Peter's drawing this picture of prepare your minds for action, be disciplined, be self-controlled, and now listen to the key. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Did you catch it? Set your hope fully on what? On what? What are you setting your hope fully on today? Where is your hope? Is it on glory? Is it on security? Is it on a retirement plan? Money? Prestige? Entertainment? A fancy boat? A camper? What is it? What is your hope set fully on? Listen to what Peter says. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. For Simon Peter, the game changer and the motivator of his life was the wonderful, incredible, amazing grace of God that he had not only revealed now in the past through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, not only had Peter received it on that beach when Jesus said to him, Peter, feed my sheep. But Peter is also saying, set your hope on the grace that we yet revealed when Jesus returns or calls us home. Because that is when the ultimate revelation of God's grace, of what he has truly and really done for us, will just blow our minds. Do you believe that? That we have only yet seen a sliver of God's grace. If you think it's awesome now, just wait for what's yet to come. Right? Has he forgiven you a lot? Yeah, he has. He's forgiven me a whole lot. And he's blessed me a whole lot. And I think that's great. And I think that's awesome. But you know what Peter's getting at? He's saying we have not yet tasted of the full expression of the grace that is yet to be revealed when Jesus comes. Are we setting our hopes fully on that day of revelation when we're going to drop to our knees in nothing but awestruck wonder at who this Lord really is. Peter's pointing to that day and saying, if you've received grace, oh, you haven't seen nothing yet. So now set your hope fully on the grace that is yet to be revealed. This is the motivator of Peter's life. It's all about grace. It's all about Jesus And so Simon Peter set his hope fully on God's unmerited favor for him every single day of his life. And because of that, God used Simon Peter to change the world. He did. Simon Peter, the rock, or the pebble, if you will. Jesus being the cornerstone. But God used little old Simon Peter to be the foundation upon which the gospel of Jesus Christ was sent into the world. Incredible, isn't it? Simon Peter, motivated by grace. Now, here's the key for us. Let's turn the corner. If Simon Peter was motivated into action by grace, are you? Am I? 
Is this church body motivated by grace? Be careful before we answer that question too quickly. Because if we say yes, if we say yes, we are motivated, I am motivated by God's grace. Not only the grace that I have received, but the grace that I know in Christ I will yet receive. If we say yes, then Simon Peter would say, okay, show me. Show me the proof in the answer through your actions. Show me. Don't believe me? Look at verses 14 and 15 of the same passage. Simon Peter goes on to say, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Whoa! Simon Peter, you're setting the bar a little too high here. Like, you're talking about grace here. You've received grace. Why are you saying, you know, be holy as God is holy? Like, that is unattainable. The bar is too high, Peter. Insurmountably high. But you know what Peter's saying? Yeah, the bar is high. The bar is set at be holy as he is holy. But you know what Peter realized and learned in his own life? And I pray that you are as well is that God's grace not only allows us to clear that high bar, but to leap right into the throne room of God without stain or blemish. That with boldness we can come before the throne room of God and bring our prayers and petitions and requests. And God doesn't kick us out as unclean or blemished. Why? Because we're jumping into the throne room of God on the shoulders of Christ. The spotless Lamb of God without stain or blemish. And those of us who are hidden in Christ, He has propitiated that upon us. He has justified us. That just as Jesus is without sin, so too we are accounted righteous, holy before God. Without stain or blemish. And so yes, be holy as God is holy. Do you believe that? That applies to you, those who have received the blood of Christ. Peter is setting the bar very high. But he's saying it's not unattainably high, not because of our actions or our good deeds, but because of what God has already done by showering us with his grace. It is too wonderful for me to really wrap my mind around how this all works. I just know deep in my heart that it does. It works. Simon Peter knew that it worked. And so I'll ask you again, is this church body motivated by grace? Are we motivated to live holy lives set apart unto God and His purposes by the wonderful grace that we have received? And to answer that question, let's return to the premise that all action, good or bad, requires a person to have the means, motive, and opportunity to actually do it. Let's use these three things to evaluate the activity and vitality of this church as it relates to our church's mission statement. We have it here before us Each and every week, it's printed on the front of our bulletin, serving with our hands, loving with our hearts, showing Christ's love, growing God's family. This is our mission statement. It's held up before us as a constant reminder, something to evaluate our actions by. Are we we pursuing these things? Are we doing these things? Are we living them, embodying them? Are these things our identity? So let's examine that. Means. Let's consider the means that we have at our disposal. Do we have the means to do the mission that God has asked us to do? Well, consider this. The physical means at our disposal. We are, without a doubt, one of the wealthiest nations on planet Earth. In fact, if you read of any of the, the, the Forbes assessments, we're in consistently, year after year, in the top five of the wealthiest nations on earth as individual people. The physical means. Psalm 50 verse uh, 10 says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And I would suggest that if he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, 700 of those hills are in Canada. Proportionally, the wealth in the world, we have a big chunk of it right here. And you and I are recipients of that. We are not short on the resources of money or possessions here in Canada. Secondly, the spiritual means. First and foremost, God has given every Christian the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that 
The indwelling and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is not limited to Pentecostals. <laughs> Did you know that? That we Mennonites get the Holy Spirit too? Really? Yes, we do. In fact, Scripture makes it consistently and blatantly clear. Listen to Jesus' words on this. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You've probably memorized this passage. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then listen to what Peter says, echoing this in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Preaching the gospel, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. He doesn't end there. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian here today, you have received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You have been indwelt by none other than the Holy Spirit of God. And guess what? All of His power comes with. All of God's power comes with His presence. Do you feel powerless? Good. You should. In and of yourself, you are. I am. But guess what? With the Holy Spirit comes power. And in the name of Jesus comes authority. And in that power, we have all of the spiritual means necessary to accomplish the mission. But you know what? As if the Holy Spirit wasn't enough, God has also given us His Word. You want to talk about means. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given the complete revelation of the Word of God. Paul says this of it to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for what? Every good work. You want to talk about means? You want to talk about equipping? We've been given the Word of God. And as if God's Spirit and God's Word aren't enough means to do everything that He's asked us to do, Right here today, we have more Christian study, material, and program resources than in any other period of church history. For 2,000 years, we have stockpiled more Christian resources, more evangelistic tools, more Bible studies, more small group curriculum than in any other point in church history. The fact is, the majority of us sitting here today have read books, or at least done Bible study series or small group studies on personal evangelism, living out our faith, making disciples, just walking across the room, being courageous, daring to be uncommon, etc., etc., etc. And you know what? I'm beginning to think that we have too many resources. Not because the resources aren't good, but because sometimes when you begin to have too much of a good thing, you begin to take them for granted. We begin to consume DVD studies and Max Licato books as though just doing that is the primary goal. And that actually living out what we learn in practical ways, well, that's secondary. I just want to consume more of this great material. Let me tell you a story about a teenage boy in China found a little Bible tract with just a few verses on it outlining the plan of salvation. He read the tract... He believed it. He prayed the little prayer that was printed on the tract, and he was so changed and motivated by this little tract that he began to show it to others. And before very long, this teenage boy had started a church. But get this, he didn't even know that that's what it was because he didn't know anything else about the Bible outside of the few verses printed on that little tract. And after some time, an underground Chinese pastor heard about this group that had started up, and and he sought them out. And when he met the young leader of the group, he asked him, Do you have a Bible? And the young man replied with a confident, Yes! And he held up his little tract. (laughs) And with a little smile on his face, in reply, the pastor reached into his bag and held out a full copy of the Bible and said, Here, this is yours. You just have a few verses of it, but here's the rest of the story. (laughs) Can you imagine the smile on that young man's face as he realized he had only had a fraction of the whole, 
And yet even the smallest fraction of it had transformed him so completely that he was already living it out. My friends, how many means do we have at our disposal in comparison to that teenage boy? How many resources? And can we honestly say that we're putting the abundance of what we know into practice the same way he was putting into practice the comparatively very little that he knew? My friends, we have the means, physically and spiritually. And now we're going we're gonna to skip the motivation, because we've already talked about that a little bit, and we're going to get back to it. But I want to move now from the means to the opportunity. Do we have the opportunity to fulfill the mission of this church? Well, let's think about it for a moment. Do we have opportunities? Do you? I like to believe that they're all around us. Jesus himself said the fields are white unto harvest. They're ripe. They're loaded. Remember, these are Jesus' words, not mine. The fields are white unto harvest. And just as the combines are currently harvesting a bumper crop of wheat, or at least an above average crop of wheat, if that'll make you feel better, Right? There's a good crop out there. And which one of you farmers would think, I'm going to sit here at home and watch TV while my field just begins to wither and, and go rotten and the snow is going to trample it to the ground? Who's going to do that here? Not one of you. Nor should you. And Jesus uses that same comparison. And he says, the fields, the spiritual fields, are white unto harvest. It's ready to go. Get out the combines. It's not a matter of the opportunity. He then says, Pray therefore that the Lord of the harvest will send workers into his harvest field. It's not a matter of the opportunity. They're all around them. Not a day goes by without an opportunity to be involved in bringing in that harvest. Do we see those opportunities? So if we have the means to introduce people to the life-transforming grace of God, and we have the opportunity right here in Killarney, Manitoba... To see God's family grow. Why does that seem to be happening so slowly? It's a question I've often pondered. Why is it happening so slowly? Now let me be very clear. I'm not trying to be a downer this morning. It's just that the Holy Spirit has been laying this so heavily on my heart this past week that I can't not speak it. And here's what he's been telling me. He's been telling me that this church family is currently treading water. We're, we're not going backwards, but we're not really going forwards either. Maybe stuck in neutral is a good description. Yes, we've made some good progress, absolutely. Yes, we've taken some real strides forward. But slowly and subtly, we're slipping back into that old mentality of just maintaining the status quo. These attitudes begin to subtly, ever so slowly, sneak in and we don't even realize it. We begin to think thoughts like, you know, uh, so long as we have a Sunday school for the kids, that's good enough. Preferably if someone else is teaching, of course. So long as we show up to church often enough that people won't begin wondering if I'm attending somewhere else. So long as we've got a sermon to listen to on Sunday, you know, and we've given enough to keep the lights on and the air conditioning running and the doors open, that's good enough, isn't it? And sure, we have a sign on our wall that says, Growing God's Family, but that's just nice sentiment. We're not really expecting that to happen. Or are we? Let's think about that for a moment. Are these four statements on our sanctuary wall a description of what we would like for this church to be someday? Or are they a description of who we are right now? Here today, September 1st, 2013, is this who we are? Is it our identity? Is it what we are living out daily, weekly, monthly? Is it? Or are they just a nice idea? Serving with our hands. Are we doing that? Is it a nice idea? Serving with our hands. Well, I will when I have more spare time. Loving with our hearts, well, when I feel like it. Showing Christ's love, yeah, that's great, so long as someone else is doing it. Growing God's family, well, if they fall into our lap and meet our standards, then yes. 
Is that what we do with these signs? These four signs are unconditional statements with no fine print or strings attached. Either they are true, or we may as well just take them off our sanctuary walls. Either they describe our core values, purpose, and activity, or they don't. And if they don't, and they're nothing more than nice ideas, and we're not actually going to take them seriously, we may as well just take them down and replace them with a big sign that says status quo is the way to go. Where are we as a church? Are we content with status quo? Because let me tell you, Jesus isn't. Jesus is not content with us sitting and treading water. We so easily fall into that mentality because by nature, we're, we're lukewarm. We so easily slip into apathy. We so easily slip into just doing enough to get by week to week to week to week. Just get by, bare minimum. And default settings for us happen so easily, my friends. I know it. I've been there so many times where you just just do the bare minimum that you've got to do. And Jesus says, I didn't die for the bare minimum. I didn't give my life for my bride, the church, so she could be lukewarm and apathetic and just pat each other on the back and show up to a social club on Sunday morning. That's not what I died for. No, I died for my bride, the church, so she would change the world. So that the people would live out such lives that everyone would see that there is a difference. And that because of it, people would be attracted to the wonderful grace of God and receive it for themselves. That is what he died for, my friends. God did not give us his grace so that we can just maintain the status quo. Jesus has called his bride to turn the world upside down. He has called his church to make disciples of all nations. He has called you his friend. And he has told you that all he wants in return is your love, and that the sign of your love is by obeying what he has told you. And I want you to just imagine for a moment that if today, suddenly, without any warning, Canada has suddenly become a completely secular and atheistic state. Just like that. We're sitting here and it's happened. Overnight, the government has outlawed Christianity because of new hate crime legislation that has branded all Christians as an extremist group inciting hatred, bigotry, and intolerance against those outside of our group. And just imagine that the police have been ordered to begin rounding up and prosecuting Christians who are charged with being guilty of propagating, spreading the hate-inspiring teachings of Jesus. Now imagine that after leaving church today, they're waiting outside and they arrest you simply for being here. And you are put on trial and face the charge of spreading the teachings of Jesus. And assuming it was a fair trial... Would there be enough evidence to convict us? Would there be undisputable, irrefutable proof that we had the means, motive, and opportunity to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we were actively engaged in doing so? Or would the judge say, there's not enough evidence, you can go free? Maybe that scenario sounds a little far-fetched to you. Maybe I'm beginning to get a little too sensationalist. But for years now, God has been impressing upon me that that day will come right here in Canada in some form. Not just might, but will, if the church doesn't wake up and start doing and being what Jesus intends for his bride to be and to do. My friends, the enemy is not sitting idle or passive while the church, called to be the salt and light of the world, is content to go through the motions, content to stay in the status quo. No, my friends, Satan is alive and active in this world in ever-increasing and obvious ways all the time. 
You look at the decay in our social morality. You know, you, you see the bar being pushed constantly. You know, I'm sorry to bring this up, but probably most of you couldn't have helped but heard about Miley Cyrus's so-called twerking on national television. Disgusting. You know, just degrading. And yet this is what our teenagers are being bombarded with. And our society as a whole is saying, ah, oh, it's kind of off-color, but whatever, she's expressing herself. You know, but this is the bar that is continually being pushed lower and lower. We see our nation as a whole degrading socially. And then we see it also in our, in our governments. This legislation is constantly being pushed forward that would, that would push Christianity to the side, that would, that would make it in the name of anti-bullying or hate crime legislation impossible or, or at least very hard for us to share our faith or speak out on what we believe is right or wrong because we may be offending or infringing upon someone else's beliefs. These are the things that are increasingly happening. And as we realize that the enemy is alive and active in this world and in our land, are we going to sit passive? Are we going to be content to just tread water? Or are we going to start swimming? Are we going to get out of neutral and ram that thing into drive and put our foot on the gas and get going? Because we don't know how much time we have. And if nothing else, we know that bare minimum, Jesus has said, make disciples, be a witness, be salt, be light. These aren't optional if we are to be true followers of Jesus Christ. And so, when we evaluate ourselves under these criteria... And we ask the question, are we living out this mission? We have to admit that if we're not, if something is falling short in this category, can we admit that? Can we admit where we're truly at? You know, not, not dress it up, not try to make it more palatable than it is. Can we admit where we're really at? Because when we ask the question, are we growing God's family? I praise God for the lives that have been changed through the ministry of this church. I think of the, the young lives who turned their, their, their faith to Jesus Christ in the junior youth program this past year. That's awesome. And we, either directly or indirectly, got to be a part of that. And you know what? In the, the senior youth program, the dedications and rededications that took place this past year. This is God's work. This is, this is exciting. This, this is what gets me out of bed in the morning. And to hear a testimony of a friend who came to salvation, that is something worth cheering about because heaven is. You know, these are the things that should excite us, motivate us, compel us, drive us because the grace of God is awesome. Is it awesome in your life, my friends? Because it's awesome in mine. And I wouldn't be up here without it. I don't even know how people get out of the bed, get out of bed in the morning without it. I really don't. Because the wonderful grace of God changes everything. I hope it changes you. And I hope that this morning it is doing something in your heart right now to say, "You know what? We can't stay where we are. We've come a long ways, but we got further to go. We haven't reached the finish line yet." Because if we're going to keep growing God's family, that means you and I have to be actively engaged in that process. You know, it's awesome what he's doing in the, in the youth. But what about the adults all around us who need God's grace? You know, since I started here, my very first year, I asked a form of this question. How many believers, or how many people have become believers because of the ministry of this church. And at the time, the answer was zero. At least when it was put in the phrase of in the past year. So we said, how about the last two years, three years, four years, five years? And I think once we went back far enough, we came up with one. And so each year is kind of a, a litmus test, if you will. I, I go through this as a pastor, and I think about our church's mission and our vitality, and I ask that question and consistently year after year, the number of adults who come to faith in Jesus Christ hovers between zero and one. Now that may work for computers, but zero and one is not a good number for a church. If that is our average of how many adults are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we have to look at the motor and say, you know what, this thing's not running full speed. 
God wants us to get our engine in gear and get it moving, get it revving, because the harvest is plentiful. And if we're only bringing in 1% of the harvest in any given harvest year, how many farmers are going to make a living doing that? How many churches are going to keep growing or even sustaining themselves at that ratio? And worse yet, the implications of how many souls are slipping into eternity without the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's happening on our watch. Because God has asked us to be the watchman for this town and this community. For the people in our circles, in our spheres of influence, we are held accountable before God. And Peter says, since we will stand before God someday in this way, let's live our lives with reverent fear, holding nothing back. If Peter lived his life that way, what about us? Are we living our lives that way? We need to move forward. We can't stay where we are. Where we are is not okay in God's books. So as we enter a new school year, a new Sunday school year, a new youth year, may it also be a new year of souls being one. Because my friends, the litmus test for a truly healthy church You can argue me on this all you want, but the weight of Scripture stands on my side of the argument. The the bar for a healthy church is and always will be a soul-winning church. A church that is regularly invested in adding to the number those who are being saved. That is the mark of a healthy church. And so if you're here today and you want to be a part of that, If you want to be a part of what God wants to do in this church, that's not my working. That's not even your working. That's His working. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who inspires those kinds of thoughts. It is God's Word and the Spirit that drives the force of it home into our hearts that says, yeah, you can be a part of that, and I will use you and you and you to be a part of what I'm going to do in this church to my glory and the salvation of many. That is the call for us. Growing God's family. Showing Christ's love. We need to get involved. And you know what? We have the means. We have the opportunity. And I pray that this morning, you have the motivation by God's grace. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be launching an initiative as a church. That on Sunday, September 22nd, we are going to invite the community to attend our church service. We're going to do that. We're going to call it, uh, there's there's a nationwide movement that's called Back to Church Sunday. And we're we're going to get engaged in this because we're going to, of course, maybe throw some invites out there to the community, but you know what's going to make the biggest difference if someone's going to come check out this church from a neighborhood around here? Someone maybe in your neighborhood? It's going to be a personal invitation from you. And we're going to have little cards with our church's service time and information as an invitation for you personally to have at your disposal to give to a neighbor and say, we're inviting the community to church on September 22nd. And hey, if you're going to another church, bless you. Go to your church. Absolutely. But if you don't have a church family and you want to check it out, this is the Sunday to give it a try. And we're going to do this. And... If you want to say, give me an opportunity to get involved, here it is. A couple of weeks' time, we're going to be talking about this as the weeks go by and as the material becomes available. And we're, we're going to, as a church family, get engaged in this. But it's only going to go as far as each one of us looks in the mirror and says, what am I going to do? How am I going to be a part of this? Because it's so easy to sit there and say, I hope everyone else does it. Right? But if everyone does that, nothing happens. We all got to look in the mirror and say, I'm going to get involved, and what am I going to do? And start praying right now. Who would you have me invite, Lord? Who would you have me invite? And begin praying. Because you know what? All these empty pews in here, these are not buffer zones so that we can just keep ourselves separate from each other. No, no, no. These are opportunities. These are means that can be filled by the grace and power of God. Do you believe that? I do. I would not be standing up here this morning if I didn't. To God be the glory for what he has yet to do. Let's be a part of it. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-disciplined. Set your hope fully 
on the grace that is yet to be revealed when Christ returns. Amen. Lord Jesus, I give you all glory and praise. I thank you that your shed blood as the sacrificial lamb has forgiven me my sins, and that if anyone's sitting here today and right now is feeling that conviction that, you know what, I haven't yet received that for myself. Oh Lord, right now, would you whisper to their heart that it is as near as this moment in your presence to say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins to forgive me. So I ask you, Lord, to forgive my sins, to come into my life, and to be my Savior. And that from this day forward, I am going to now follow you and seek to make you the master of my life. And I want to learn from you and become like you. Oh Lord, thank you that your grace is as near as that prayer. And so Father, as your grace and this wonderful gift you've entrusted to us is so near and so accessible, oh Lord, may we hold it out freely. May we not hide our light under a bowl. May we not squirrel it away in a closet. Oh Lord, may we put it up on its lampstand. May we be that city on a hill that would shine brightly. Be bold and be courageous, holding nothing back, because your grace is all-sufficient and it is a motivator for me. Motivate us by your grace as we go forward. We pray, Lord, that even now as you are stirring in our hearts, begin to stir in the hearts of those around us in this community who you desire according to your will, that they would come to know you in a personal way. Use us to that end, O oh Lord. Use us to bring in that harvest. For your sake and glory, we pray this. In Jesus' name. Amen.